Tolstoy said, every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. And why are we telling you that in a Shakespeare podcast? I'll clear that up in a second. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. It's hard to think of an unhappier family than the one Edward St. Aubin began to chronicle in 1992 with the publication of Nevermind, the first of what would become the Patrick Melrose series. Five novels of torture, brutality, drug addiction, and denial, all within the life of one upper-class English family. And for Edward St. Aubin, much of it is autobiographical. So, the publishers of the Hogarth Shakespeare Project must have been thrilled when St. Aubin's agent contacted them to say that if they were looking for a contemporary author to adapt one of Shakespeare's most dysfunctional families, Goneril, Regan, Cordelia, and their raving, vindictive father, King Lear, St. Aubin was their man. Edward St. Aubin's new book for Hogarth is titled Dunbar. The title character is a modern-day king, a media mogul on the scale of Rupert Murdoch, whose evil daughters have him locked away against his will in a psychiatric hospital. Earlier this month, Edward St. Aubin was in New York, and we were lucky enough to get him into the studio to talk about his writing process, King Lear, and whether it's true that every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. We call this podcast The Untented Woundings of a Father's Curse, Edward St. Aubin is interviewed by Barbara Bogave. I can see why Hogarth would look to you, someone who's consistently written about power and, and violence and what one salvages from the wreckage of family, to adapt Lear. But what attracted you to it? And I understand you heard about the Adaptation Project and approached Hogarth first. That's right. My agent approached Hogarth. I felt attracted for the reasons you've already mentioned, that it was natural territory for me. And also because I did King Lear for A-level, which is the exam you do in England to get into university. And it's the only time you spend two years with the same text, probably for the rest of your life. And so I I felt that Lear was deep in my system. And it, it, in fact, informed the Melrose books and is quoted several times in Mother's Milk and and also mentioned in At Last. So it was already informing my books before it became the formal pretext for a novel of my own. Oh, that's so interesting. And I can imagine two years with a text and when you're so young, it does become somehow written into your DNA. But what did you specifically relate to, do you think, so powerfully when you were studying it when you were young? Well, I was under an obligation to understand it. I suppose as a schoolboy, that was my first uh, relationship with it. Um, And, you know, I I wish I still had my teenage copy. I think I wrote things like metaphor in the margin, sometimes when it was a metaphor, (laughs) sometimes when it wasn't. And um, lack of self-K, I remember being, K standing for knowledge, um, being a big entry which seemed to appear everywhere in the marginalia of my copy. But once I was immersed in it, I did find the subject matter, the big themes of Lear, which were the things I felt I needed to remain loyal to in Dunbar. Blindness and power and the nature of love and self-knowledge to be fundamental and, and engrossing themes. 
And I want to talk about those, but but I'd like to nail down some of the nitty-gritty first. Once you got the go-ahead, what did you do first? Did you reread the play, or, or did you watch uh, Ian McKellen on YouTube? I didn't watch Ian McKellen um, at first. I got hold of, with, without having ever seen it before, a Peter Brooks film of King Lear with Paul Schofield playing Lear. Oh, yes, that's a good one. And... It's extraordinary, and and um, everyone is riding on Exmoor ponies across the windswept tundra, and seems to be dressed in a pelt that's just been torn from a dying animal. So it's very much a a Lear set in 800 BC, where Hollingshead said that Lear was king of England, and but it's a very Beckettian, very nihilistic, very extreme version of Lear. And I was completely persuaded by its brilliance. And at the end, I rushed to the phone and rang my agent and said, is it too late to back out? <laughs> because I thought it was, <laughs> it was so much over in the bleak existential vision of man's suffering and horror and cruelty without a hint of redemption. Then I reread the play and kind of saw how tendentious, although brilliant, um, Peter Brooks's version was. And I was reassured by that. I felt there was room for manoeuvre. And by room for manoeuvre, what did you mean by that? Because as you speak, I'm thinking of the other writers we've talked to who've done adaptations, and they've all gone through some kind of similar panic. How can I ever change? How can I ever match up to, you know, the anxiety of influence of Shakespeare? And it's interesting with you that in your book, you hew rather closely to the plot of Lear, and not all the Hogarth authors do. Yes, I I felt that, um, well, the themes are so large, as we've already mentioned, that there's an enormous amount of room for maneuver within them. So I didn't see any point in either approaching it facetiously or tangentially. I felt it should be about a powerful man because there are political dimensions to Lear which don't survive if you set Lear on a domestic scale in the way that Balzac did in the Pergoria, for instance. So I wanted to make my Lear a media mogul with genuine power who is part of the kind of permafrost of power that underlies the brief summers of electoral democracy. or uh, And certainly... The, you know, the modern analogue of a king is not a king. So I felt that the, the analogue of a king was a global, ultra-rich media mogul with a huge influence over the political process without being subject to its buffeting. So that was an aesthetic choice. You didn't want to get away from the, these uh, larger themes of, of power. Because I'm thinking of Jane Smiley's A Thousand Acres, one of the best-known adaptations of Lear to Americans anyway. And she, of course, stood the structure on its head. And Lear is a farmer in the American Midwest with three daughters. She be, makes it into a domestic power situation. And she also tells has, has the eldest daughter uh, narrate the story, tells it from her point of view. It's a, what, do you, what do you think of that approach? Given, given I've, I, I haven't read Jane Smiley's novel, and But I hear it's really good. Everyone who tells me about it says it's very good. And I think it's a very interesting approach. And I'm impressed by the idea of it. But I I wanted to go down the highway to keep the political dimensions and also to portray madness and the disintegration of, of someone's mind. I think that the theme of someone having self-knowledge 
thrust upon them unwillingly at a very late age when their circuitry is barely able to take the charge is something that I, I find very poignant and I wanted to be true to that. I also felt I should be true to the basically true, although there are variations, to the tragic nature of King Lear and not do what Nathan Tate famously did by rewriting it with a happy ending. He, he was a, a re- that's, this, you're referring to the restoration uh, folly of having a happy ending for, for Lear. Exactly. In 1681, we think of happy endings, enforced happy endings, as being some sort of Hollywood executive's prerogative. But in fact, in 1681, Nathan Tate forced a happy ending on Lear. And the real Lear was not performed again until um, 1838 because people found it too morally repulsive for for goodness to be punished in the way that Cordelia's goodness is punished. That's true. It's even later here in America before we had a a tragic ending for Lear. And I think it was Edwin Booth, uh, John Wilkes Booth's brother, who who was the first to to decide to play Lear without using the Tate version. Really? Yeah, Yeah, it's an interesting history. You... Within the exploration of the themes of power, you also pick up on the malevolent workings of it with the daughters, with the evil daughters. And, it, and it's something you've written a lot about, that, uh, that being close to power or privilege makes you feel more powerful or privileged, you know, beyond the confines of, of normal morality. And also that it makes you assume everyone can be treated as if they're not fully human. It gives a, more of a backstory, certainly, than than uh, Shakespeare gave to, to the daughters in, in Lear. Absolutely, and I think that's really what was, uh, from a technical point of view, fascinating for me, the refractive value of moving from a, a Jacobean play to a 21st century novel, and what happens when the play enters into something as psychologically dense as a novel. You can't have a Cordelia character in my book, she's called Florence, who who is as emblematic and thin as Cordelia is. She has very few lines and and stands for an almost impossible goodness. And and I've tried, as a novelist, I have to make her fully human and and flawed. And, And the evil daughters also have their own inner life. And this is what a novelist can bring, is, um, a portrait of of the subjectivity of the characters. And that's why, you know, I'm not shadowing King Lear. I'm filling in something that that isn't in the drama. King Lear doesn't have any monologues. He doesn't come front stage and explain what's going on in his mind to the audience because he has no self-knowledge which is very different from Hamlet, who can hardly take a break from rushing forward to make a very eloquent description of what's going on in his mind. Lear doesn't do that once, and so there was that opportunity to try and explore what was going on in his mind, which is natural to the novel. Which I think are some of the best passages in, in your book, where you do that, these please, please don't let me go mad passages, where where your Lear Dunbar is unmoored in the wilderness, and you get into another theme of Lear, which is the, the, the question of what is natural, what is natural in power, what is uh, natural to man. 
And you write things like his sense of self was so fragile and contingent it might dissolve like a watercolor in the rain. And another beautiful uh, passage, as the ship disappears, all directions are abolished. There's no gravity, no tangible surface or meaningful reference point, only the hollow scepter of infinite space. What experience have you had personally with this to help you imagine yourself into the mind of Lear, into the mind of a disintegrating, his physical and mental disintegration and and his distress about it? It's my job to imagine other people's mentalities, but I do find it frighteningly easy (laughs) in the the sense that uh, I think probably historically it was so uncomfortable being myself that I was always pretending to be someone else. And that was a deep, mimetic habit, which probably has pathological origins, but then was transformed into something that was very useful for me as a writer. And yes, we should say that the ship in that quotation is a spaceship. It's not, it's not an ordinary naval ship. I, I track his disintegration and madness as he goes through through the wilderness on his own. And again, that's a variant with the play. King Lear is always with an entourage. And I think that it's isolation that produces madness, that very few people go mad with a large entourage. And so I've put Dunbar on his own. And he's almost never been on his own before. He's always been surrounded by flatterers and minions and secretaries. And uh, in that solitude, the pressure of guilt and um, anxiety and the memories of what he's done in his life drive him mad. It is a, a hard act to, to manage, though, to balance. I was thinking, you know, you have Dunbar, all of this is happening in the wilderness as he flees his, the sanitarium that his daughters have exiled him to. And I know, I know you've said that you sometimes long to write poetry instead of having to do all this novelistic stuff like uh, wretched settings and description, I think you said. But you do quite a bit of that in this book. I th- this is my most plotted book. I think that's driven by the drama that it comes from. I felt it needed to have momentum and and real plot in the, in the way that Lear does, you know, about the invasion of the country and the outcome of the battle and so forth. So I, I felt I had to be true to that. And it's a much more plotted and thriller-like book than the Melrose books are or any of my other books. Yes, you're right about... Um, I did want to write poetry when I was young, and um, as a late adolescent and into my early 20s. And I think it's because I'm very interested in imagery and in, in a communication that goes straight from one imagination to another um, that just needs to be imagined rather than explained. And the I think that's still present in my writing. It's full of similes and 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 is strongly visual but for some reason i also want to tell stories you know? so the the poetry side of me got wrapped up into prose well this merging of the inner and outer landscapes and how that feeds each other it's it is very evocative and it and it made me think of something you once said about your Patrick Melrose series that that the books trace Melrose's attempt to emerge with dignity from an impossible assault on dignity and that seems to apply very much to Dunbar and it it made me question whether as you wrote this book you associated Dunbar more with your yourself 
or yourself as a father or your perhaps your father or 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 all of these or all of your personas because that is the mystery of having children you have two children you're always living many generations at once and you have a particularly traumatic experience as a child um, you're always experiencing yourself as a child and as a parent at the same time. Were any of these things swirling through you as you as you wrote this book? They may have been in the background because uh, every writer is writing from the sum of their experience. But they, but it's a very different uh, drama. I agree that there's the misuse of power and there's there's a bad father. But um, Dunbar is an entirely different kind of bad father than David Melrose. We can't just throw all kinds of bad parenting into the same supermarket trolley. You know, He's not a pervert, he's not a sadist, he's not a murderer, he's not a psychopath. He's just uh, a tyrant, you know, who's been used to having his own way and who wants to keep the trappings of power without the responsibilities of power. So it's a, it's a different story. It's the key to the story lies in Shakespeare's character, not in in my own past characters. I think. How was that for you? I imagine that's rather liberating after writing five books based in your past. I know you've written other books it, as well since then, but it was delightful to be writing about someone else's unhappy family. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> uh, tremendous relief. Um, well, in most of your work, you you do balance the satire with tragedy. So was it clear uh, from the beginning, as you said, that you weren't going to go the Tate way, that, that you'd ultimately, which way you'd ultimately go with Dunbar? Because at the end, it's tragic, but the, there is some hope that's tempered by some hope. It, it, it is, and my ending is different from the ending of the play, very significantly different. But I did feel that it would be really disreputable to follow Nathan Tate rather than William Shakespeare. And and so I did want to stay true to the tragic nature of Lear. But that's why, in a way, I was so disconcerted by Peter Brook's film that I saw at the beginning, because it's so nihilistic that, in a way, it... it it eliminates the possibility of tragedy. Absurdity and tragedy are not the same thing. If everything is meaningless, then there can't be any tragedy. Lear needs to gain some insight just before it becomes useless. He needs to rediscover love just before it disappears. That's tragic. It's not tragic if things are just meaningless and relentlessly horrible. So... That's why I think there needs to be some sense of of redemption, which is then annihilated in order to create the um, experience of tragedy. And I felt I had to be loyal to that without any doubt, but that there would be lots of departures. I, the subplot, which might be resonant or reflective in the play, would just be redundant or repetitious in a novel. I felt it, I would break with Shakespeare and having a fool who was actually funny. Uh, whereas the fool in, the fool in Lear what a is, is, a, oh. is a torment, isn't he? Um, for, all we know, <clears throat> for all we know, the audience in 1606 were clutching their sides when he made jokes about cracking eggs and, you know, the two halves being hollow crowns and so forth. But, oh, it's such a groaner. But, 
And I have it, to say, uh, you're you're you have some very delightful Shakespearean dialogue between Dunbar and and Peter, your fool. He's a he's a fellow nursing home resident, sanitarium resident, and he's a television comic. And he says things like, "I suffer from depression, the comic affliction, or the tra- tragic affliction of the comic, or the historic affliction of tragic comedians, or the fiction of tragic affliction of historic comedians." It goes on and on. The banter between them really has the Shakespearean flavor. Yes, and he's also a compulsive mimic who switches voices the whole time and that's the kind of comedian he is and he's um, too fond of a drink and so he's in the sanatorium to cure his alcoholism but they decide to escape together and and I think Peter is entertaining. Anyways, he's, a, he's more entertaining than the fool, so I'm setting a very low bar. <laughs> um, Lucky for you. Um, <laughs> I'd like to switch gears just a little bit and broaden this to Shakespeare in general as opposed to focusing on Lear. And I know that you said that there's a marked difference in your reading habits when you're writing a novel and when you're not, and that between novels you try to read in a focused and disciplined way, choosing a theme or a genre to get to know better. You gave the example of memoir and autobiography, but it did make me wonder, is the genre ever Shakespeare or does it ever include Shakespeare? I did read a a good book called The Year of Lear about the historical context in which King Lear was being written. That's one of my favorites. It's a great book, yeah, in 1606 when it was performed in front of James I. And that was very... That was fascinating in terms of the connections between uh, the play and the political scene at the time, which is quite interestingly close to some of the political context we're in now. James I, who'd only been crowned two years before the play as a king of Great Britain, was obsessed with the unity of uh, of his kingdom and wrote a, a treatise for his son saying that the worst possible thing would be to divide the kingdom. So for Lear to be tearing up the map of Britain, you know, at the beginning of the play was a, an acutely uh, relevant and um, charged act at that time. And strangely enough, um, thanks to the worst prime minister we've ever had, it's become... Uh, very relevant again, you know, we almost lost Scotland, you know, Britain has extracted itself from the European Union. So all sorts of maps are being torn up in modern Britain, just as they were at the time that Lear was first performed in the anxiety of the king's mind, you know, that was what he regarded as the worst possible outcome. And then the question of nature, which you've already mentioned, which is like a it's a word which is so complex in the play, it's more like a, a delta of meanings. And we now live in the death of nature. You know, if there is any wilderness left in England, it's a bureaucratic entity, it's a national park. It's not really wild, it's deliberately, carefully planned wildness. And so all of these things take on new contemporary meanings, which were... Um, in the play. And Shapiro's book is very good, very good, I think, about um, all of that. Um, yeah, and those were things that Shakespeare was already thinking about then, and that's that's why they're there, this death of, of the wilderness, that England was no longer the uh, idyllic park it once was. Well, is nature healing, or is it um, wild and destructive and threatening? You know, um, 
is a question that the play goes back to again and again. Again, stepping back from Lear, you, you've said that Joyce and Beckett might be the only two writers uh, you've ever praised wholeheartedly. That's what a friend of yours told a reporter. Where does Shakespeare rank? Who you? is that? I, 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 <laughs> Someone's I really walking around with a lot of, be lot of dirt on In charge of these preposterous <laughs> claims. I, I, there are lots of writers that I admire and uh, hugely and James and Tolstoy. I mean, the list could go on. I'm, I'm sure, but we Nabokov only care about Shakespeare right now. Where does Shakespeare come in the pantheon? Well, obviously, he dominates all of English literature, and that's why he's... But not for every one individual, not for every one person. I mean, and again, Lear, Thackeray once said it was a huge bore. Uh, watching Ooh, Lear and uh, a, a tedious bore, and and of course we know we're not. It's sacrilegious to it's blasphemy to say Shakespeare uh, isn't brilliant, but he just couldn't get wrap his head around it. Well, a lot of people um, thought it was unstageable and unwatchable. There's a very long tradition of saying, um, including Lamb and so forth, of saying that that Lear could only be read; it couldn't ever be staged. And but nobody can read Lear without being blown away by the intensity of the of the rhetoric. It, it, it the the language is not a bore, even if one particular production is a bore to go to. And I'm sorry for Thackeray, but if he'd sat at home reading it, <laughs> he he could not have been bored by the language. And that's what I mean by Shakespeare towering over all of English literature. I just think that there is no comparable height of rhetorical achievement in, I don't know whether there ever will be. In that sense, I'm just like everyone else. I recognize that. I think that's just a sort of bold... Fact. It's not. It doesn't mean that every play of Shakespeare's is a delight, but but the great plays. It's almost not worth saying, but the great plays contain some of the most beautiful language in in English literature. Well, we started this conversation talking about how you read Shakespeare as a, a teenager and how much it resonated with you, mm. and how much you had to had <laughs> to find a re- resonate with you, but it. It is a question for me how what you value about the play, about Lear, shifted at all as you've grown older and grappled with your past. And now, after writing this book, whether you have different new insights or a different uh, perspective on, on the play. I think because of uh, writing a, a novel that's based on King Lear and because of the psychological density that we were talking about earlier, and the the novel's ability to drop into the mind of any of the characters, the convention that the novel enjoys to be able to do that. I think that the I have a m- much more tender feeling about uh, Lear, and I didn't in any way set out for Dunbar to be a, a tender character, but I think that he is portrayed with a kind of um, compassion which has altered my feeling about Lear, or which is the, 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 the alteration of the feeling. Um, the, because of trying to... There has to be a Queen Lear, you know, Freud asked, where's Queen Lear? You know, I, I put in a Queen Lear. Why are the daughters so different from each other? They have different mothers, and so forth. And the more we get to know about Lear's life, 
then the more understandable he becomes. And as the French famously say, to understand everything is to forgive everything. So I think that my my sense of empathy with this old man who's being forced to understand something that he's evaded his whole life um, under very extreme conditions means that I, I feel more compassion for Leah than I, than I do when I go to the average production along with William Thackeray. You know, <laughs> well, there are, of course, heartbreaking moments. And you're, you're a heartbreaking one of the many in, in the wilderness, is Lear saying, if his daughters had turned out monstrous, it's because he had raised them, a monster had raised them. They, he, exactly. That moment of self-knowledge. That moment of self-knowledge. His, <clears throat> his older daughters have become are his creation. They've, they've slavishly imitated him in order to try and win his love imitated his ruthlessness, his impatience, his um, short-temperedness, his habit of his imperiousness. His brutality. All the things, and his brutality. And they've imitated that to please him. But then the use they make of those qualities is against him. But he, he does recognize at some point that they're not just maltreating him, but that they are his creation. That's true. I, I, I can't keep you longer. I want to thank you. Thank you so much for this. I've so enjoyed talking with you. Thank you, Barbara. It's been a pleasure. Edward St. Aubin is the author of nine books, the most famous of which are the Patrick Melrose novels. His latest book, Dunbar, is part of the Hogarth Shakespeare Project published by Random House in 2017. He was interviewed by Barbara Bogave. The Untented Woundings of a Father's Curse was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor and Esther Farrington. We had help from Andrew Feliciano and Evan Marquardt at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California, and Paul Ruest at Argo Studios in New York. If you've been enjoying Shakespeare Unlimited, I hope you'll consider reviewing the podcasts on whatever platform you get the podcast from. It helps us get the word out to people who haven't heard it, people who might enjoy it. We'd really appreciate your help. Thanks. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge and the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore. Music